0: Welcome to GabFest Reads, a monthly series from the Political GabFest. I'm David Plotz, and this month I'm super happy to talk with my friend, Florence Williams, who's the author of Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey, which is out this month. Hi, Florence.
1: Hello, David. I'm so honored and pleased to be your guinea pig for this series. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, you're always good on self-experimentation, so it'll be... (laughs) It'll be good to uh, self experiment with this podcast form. And what's more, Florence, you've done an amazing enhanced audiobook with my old colleague Jacob Weisberg over at Pushkin uh, with notes, uh, audio notes that you took as you were reporting and interviews with people. And what else is in that?
1: Yeah, we slid in um, uh, actual tape from some of my therapy sessions, and uh, some of it's pretty raw. It, it features material that's not in the book.
0: And the interview with the, with, one of the guys you rebounded with a little bit. Yes.
1: Oh, yes. He is heavily featured, in fact. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I want to give a little bit of background on Florence. So Florence is a science journalist, a very distinguished science journalist. She's based here in Washington, D.C., like me, although we're in different rooms. And she is the author of two celebrated earlier books, Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History, and The Nature Fix. And I wanted to have her on this month because Heartbreak is a very personal book. It's a very personal book, obviously for Florence, as she will talk about. It's also personal for me because Florence, you're a friendly acquaintance who became a real friend as you were working on this book because you were going through a heartbreak. You were sort of maybe a year ahead of me on the heartbreak train as I was going through a heartbreak, as my heartbreak was beginning. We both, uh, as I said, live here in Washington. We both saw 20-plus year marriages collapse at uh, uh, kind of unexpectedly around us and you were a guide and counselor to me, you know, there's a way to the other side for most of us. And I want to hope that you can be a figure of hope and possibility for GapFest listeners who might be having distress now because of a loss of love. So it's a big task. It's a big responsibility for you.
1: It is. Well, I I hope so too. And I, I hope it was helpful to you and I hope it will be helpful to others.
0: All right. I'm sure it will. So, all right, let's, let's get to the basics. So you've written a book called Heartbreak. It's personal and scientific. Uh, get the quick and dirty. What is your heartbreak? And what is heartbreak anyway?
1: I, I, you know, I think heartbreak can have a, a wide definition. And I, I try to sort of nod to that in the book, because I think certainly right now, we can all argue that we're going through a sort of collective heartbreak in a time of grief and struggling with loneliness, you know, collectively. But I do, of course, focus mostly on romantic heartbreak. That is the particular earthquake, you know, that I was experiencing. And actually, it started before the pandemic, for which I was grateful in some ways. And I think it would be interesting to talk about that, how how heartbreak sort of prepared us, you know, for the uncertainties of the pandemic. My particular heartbreak, I guess, really began um, one evening, 25 years into marriage, when I happened upon uh, an email that my then-husband Wrote sort of um, professing his love for another woman.
0: What percent of heartbreak do you think in this era begins with happening upon an email? It must be or, te- or text. I think more likely a text message. I think it must a be like ninety-eight percent.
1: A huge percentage.
0: <laughs> Lock your phones, friends.
1: Just in my defense, I want to say I was not snooping. My my then husband actually handed me his phone, and he said, "Here's an email about my dad." And uh, lo and behold, there was a very different email on there.
0: That's the trigger. But what is the? That heartbreak? was the trigger.
1: It really starts with this moment, I think, of shock. Then it progresses to this kind of, you know, disbelief and um, denial, and sort of, you know, a certain amount of of rage and upset, uh, and then, you know, real grief and the feelings of rejection and humiliation, you know, that that go along with that. And then, you know, I think it, it risks progressing into loneliness. And, and, I th- and I think, you know, for me, it definitely did to an extent. And then, uh, you know, sort of how long that loneliness lasts is a really big question in terms of what I really talk about a lot in the book, which are the health effects of this kind of heartbreak.
0: Yeah, I mean, to, I think one of the things I was going back and looking at my notes in the book and like, and it's, it's, it's almost like, like the worst doctor's visit ever, that every, <laughs> every day. Page, you have something like heartbreak is worse than smoking for your or divorce is a greater risk factor for death than smoking, fatigue, anxiety, poor impulse control, depression, cognitive decline, early death are all (laughs) impacts of this. So talk a little bit about what what does heartbreak do that just sort of like uh, being bummed does not do?
1: Yeah. And, and this was a huge surprise to me. And, you know, part of why I thought maybe there was a book here. I, I was so surprised to learn. I think we all tend to think of heartbreak as, as existing sort of in our heads. You know, it's this it's this emotional calamity. And yet, it turns out it has these really direct impacts on our immune systems, on our nervous systems, literally the way our white blood cells get reproduced in our bone marrow, and which is, you know, a, a sort of rabbit hole that I go down quite a bit in the book. And that, you know, increased inflammation in our body caused by the feelings of grief and threat and so on can have really serious implications.
0: You talk in the book about how you lost all this weight. And I just remember, I mean, for me, it was the not sleeping. Like that was what I found absolutely murderous. I went through a period of about a year where I didn't get a single good night's sleep. I mean, I would get high sometimes just to, that would like get me to sleep, but Man, I just couldn't stay asleep. It was so terrible
1: it's It's brutal. One of the first people I interviewed when I didn't even know I was writing a book yet was this biological anthropologist, Helen Fisher, who writes a lot about um, what happens to your brain when you're falling in love. And she's one of the few people who's actually kind of started to look at what happens on the other side of love, too. And, you know, the way she explained it really helped make, make sense to me, you know, that basically our stress hormones are just going nuts. When our primary attachment partner has taken off, you know, and, and we've been used to having this person around, you know, for decades, um, suddenly, we do feel very, very alone. And our bodies, you know, from, from our sort of our deepest evolutionary pasts, consider that a major threat state. It's, it's sort of like when we are preparing to be attacked by predators, because we're suddenly not with our people.
0: Do you think that the dumper feels it? I mean, we're both kind of the dumpies. The dumpers. <laughs> um, yeah,
1: Do you think so the
0: dumper has this too?
1: The dumpies have been much more studied than the dumpers, um, but it looks like they have pretty different experiences. Um, I think sometimes the dumper seems to sort of skate away you know, into into a state of sort of relief and happiness, um, sadly, for, for those of us who are the dumpies. But I don't think it's that simple. I think the dumpers also probably feel quite a lot of conflict and guilt, certainly. But I, but I think they're also maybe better at compartmentalizing that and, and thinking everything's going to be just fine.
0: I mean, every person who's ever been in a marriage has... Told, has said, or had this said to them? Well, you, you know, of course it's mediocre. Of course it's blah. You just kind of got to endure this and get through it, and that that you know, just soldier on through it. You, like, is it healthier to soldier on through something that is blah, blah blah or to go through? What's your What's your take? Is heartbreak worse for you than mediocrity?
1: Every marriage goes through the blahs. You know, it seems to be better to be um, married than to be unmarried but if you're in a bad marriage you know it, 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 then it gets a little bit it gets a little bit if you um, certainly to be single actually maybe better than to be in a bad marriage and certainly than being divorced maybe
0: I mean I, the one I have very few criticisms of your book I think the one the one area you underplay we haven't gotten to the areas that you play just right but let's The one area you underplay, I think, is the financial impact of heartbreak or of divorce or of an end of a marriage. For most people, the financial impact is so profound that it basically is a health impact too, right?
1: Absolutely. And especially for women. Women who are divorced are more than twice as likely to live in poverty than men who are divorced. Men do end up with the majority of assets um, after divorce, typically because they have higher earning power and they continue to have a higher earning power afterwards. So, I mean, the, the gender disparities actually were very fresh on my mind. To tell you the truth, I was a little bit careful about not talking about it more sort of out of sensitivity to my ex-husband who asked me not to talk about that too much. Right. I think he it would make him look even worse, you know, than I <laughs> – <laughs> <laughs> um, But but absolutely. I mean, and I think that's why, frankly, a lot of professionals and college-educated people have much lower divorce rates. Because there's this need to sort of protect the assets and because there are bigger financial implications of divorce.
0: Here you are, you're a woman in your late forties, maybe early I was
1: exactly on the brink of being fifty.
0: So you're suddenly like despairing, you're losing weight, you're freaked terib- out. <laughs> freaked out, terribly sad. And I think what's amazing about this book, what is so it is a, as you say, a personal scientific journey is that like uh, when life gives you lemons, make content. Uh, you, you made a book, but you made a book by exploring yourself and trying to like set out to figure out like what is it that I can do, I, Florence Williams, can do to make myself happier to get through this. You try every fucking thing. What yeah. did you try? And yeah, I know I, some of it's, it's research, but like every act yeah. was genuine.
1: When I found out how imperiled I was in terms of my health... Uh, There was this incredible urgency. I just felt like I needed to get better as quickly as I could. I tried mostly things that had some scientific evidence, you know, behind them. Um, I debunked actually, I think, quite a few myths that that don't have so much science behind them. You know, there's a certain amount of patlam that we're told. Oh, like you know, you shouldn't get in another relationship too soon you know you have to love yourself first before you can enter another relationship and you have to be you know in a, in a great place and already have done your growth um I, i've even heard that sometimes it's repeated that for every year of marriage you should wait six months right. <laughs> and i was like forget right, it Right. like i'm gonna like, be what, to
0: share social security <laughs>
1: what? i'm gonna be spoon-fed by that like that's just not gonna happen <laughs> Um, okay, so you want to know what I tried. So, so yes, I did try flinging myself, I think, into the arms of, of uh, other relationships, um, which for me did provide um, a certain measure of comfort. I also, you know, I had written this book called The Nature Fix about how being in nature cures everything. So I was very invested in the idea that, God, if I just go hiking and rafting um, and into the woods, I'm going to feel so much better. And so I did a lot of that. It it partly worked, but not completely. I tried psychedelics as kind of a breakup drug. You know, we, we sometimes hear of things like MDMA, ecstasy, um, being used in couples counseling. But lately, people are starting to talk about it also as a breakup drug. So I thought that was absolutely worth trying. Did that. What works? Everything was slightly disappointing because nothing really was a magic bullet of course and that's i think the big lesson of heartbreak you know it's, it's you don't really get to a destination it's all sort of uh, a process the passage of time you know helps a lot my friendships huge help i don't know if you found this david but i i really felt like i had a, a really profound appreciation for my friends yeah. Not everyone. I mean, some people sort of disappear and fade away. But but the ones who, who are there for you are really there for you. And, boy, when you're feeling lonely and feeling your self-esteem sort of at rock bottom, to have your friends really come out of the woodwork and tell you how much they love you, I mean, that was, that was some of the most powerful lessons of heartbreak that I received.
0: Yeah, I'm so with you on that. I remember, I think, Emily Bazelon, fellow GabFest host, was maybe... The first person outside of a very my immediate narrow circle, like my brother, who I told what was going on, and we were out for a walk in New York, and I was just weeping as we were walking through the streets of manhattan i don 't even actually remember what her words were, but they were just so like so comforting, and so that sense of like, okay, well, with a friend like this, how bad can it be mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you know that just stuck with me. You know what the first thing you said to me, just going back to Friendships and and also kind of the the new relationships after I remember we had our first we had a first walk it was like maybe in July of 2019 or something I was newly separated and we went out for a walk and at, as we were as I was saying goodbye you said something like don't get an STD or yes. that was your that was your big advice <laughs>
1: and you should thank me for that
0: <laughs> it's true it's seriously <laughs> I, actually but I I do want to I actually want to get to to the sex piece of this. Both for sort of personal, prurient reasons, but also because <laughs> I think it's really important. Because I've spent so much time talking to men, in particular, mm-hmm. uh, who've just separated or like marriage is falling apart or whatever it is. Just the feeling of touch and sex and kind of like being desired. If you're if you're coming off a period where you've felt undesired and where you felt you know bad about yourself, that that makes an enormous difference.
1: Yeah, I mean, the science is really supportive of that on two fronts. Literally, it seems like certainly with men and, and probably with women too, who of course haven't been studied in this context, unfortunately, but your testosterone levels literally increase after after divorce, which is really interesting, or after a split, I should say. Um, And I think it's probably part of that threat response, you know, that your body goes into. You're sort of gearing up for a fight on some level. Your testosterone levels increase. That is going to actually increase your sex drive. There's a lot of science, too, about how one of the central ways that mammals, especially primates, calm our nervous systems is through touch. You know, it literally releases oxytocin. Um, It releases these bonding hormones. It makes us feel safe and it was really helpful uh to me that way.
0: Yeah. I certainly found like that that scent, that touch, sex touch, desire being desired was you know, it was just a huge mood elevator. And uh, like it, it was it was and it, it even at a time when I felt like oh, I know that I am hiding from some of my grief through this. Like I realized that mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. some of what I'm doing is like avoiding just,
1: there's a distraction deep despair quality. and
0: distract. Yeah. I'm yeah, yeah. distracting myself on Tinder. I understood that I was doing that at the same time. It, it really, it felt really good. And I wonder, but, but I, but maybe it's better for men because it's just easier for men than it is for women to do that
1: plenty of women do that too. But I, I had a really interesting conversation with my therapist at one point. And I said, maybe it, for, for me, when one of the things I was doing was I was traveling a ton, like I was saying yes to every single speaking mm-hmm. arrangement, mm-hmm. every every travel gig, that was kind of my distraction. Like I just needed to move, 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 do stuff, do stuff, do stuff, work, work, work. And I, I said to my therapist, like, shouldn't I be just sitting still in my grief like don't I need to feel this more and she looked at me and she said you know what you are feeling it plenty and she was right I mean I certainly I I was still crying every day you know maybe for five minutes or you know maybe not all day but but the distraction piece doesn't totally work because there's still plenty of grief that that I'm sure you were experiencing
0: right I do think that my I'm wired I don't know if you're wired this I'm totally wired for like well if, if this is what I've been dealt, I'm just going to like make the most of it at least. You know, I'm going to. I I just I just I'm so wired for action as opposed to inaction, and I'm an anti-introspective person for the most part. And that's
1: actually very that that is a psychologically healthy. Attitude. I think it yeah. It felt
0: yeah. healthy. It felt healthy. Like who are I guess which made me ask myself what who are there. You do say there's some set of people who don't get beyond heartbreak. Who yeah. Who are they, and why does that happen?
1: Well you know, I think there are a lot of things that make a person less resilient, starting all the way with childhood trauma, you know, all kinds of things. Um, but I, I think, I think you're right that the introspection piece does seem to be in the profiles of people who kind of linger in their heartbreak longer. So this sort of ruminative personalities or introspective personalities, and I, I actually think I probably lean more toward that, actually. And and those are the people who I think, you know, many, many months out are still replaying, you know, what went wrong, what happened, you know, what does it mean? What's my future? So I, I think I probably lean more towards the introspection category for sure.
0: And you think that, but what is the good of that? I mean, there are good things of that. It's not just like oh, I was prolonging my misery. Like, what, what are the good Well,
1: I'd like to think that one that. is maybe art making, <laughs> You know, we're the ones who can, like, provide some wisdom and some deep thinking about, about what this does mean, what it means for us and what it means for other people and what it means for our society. Um, I think artists are known to be a little bit higher on the anxious neuroticism scale, perhaps. Um, and, and, yeah, maybe sometimes we sit in our pain a little bit longer.
0: Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. I want to also talk about Troom's because hopefully no officials no officials of the department of justice are listening to this but you were the person who kind of pointed me towards towards hallucinogens for myself too which i after you'd had an experience with with uh with shrooms psilocybin you pointed me and it was i found it incredibly helpful what's the case for mdma or psilocybin or some mix of them for heartbreak
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the first people I talked to was a psychologist at the University of Utah who said, we think that one of the keys to resilience is the ability to see beauty, uh, the ability to, to feel awe. Um, there's something about experiencing awe that actually, you know, pulls us out of our own kind of egos and our own problems, puts things into perspective, makes us feel more connected to other people. It's almost a sort of spiritual kind of concept, but I, I shudder to sort of use that word spiritual. But but anything that I think makes us think that there are things beyond ourselves can do that. And so awe is a really essential emotion, actually, for that and for, for resilience. Then I talked to another psychologist. Um, This is Dacher Keltner at the University of California, Berkeley, who writes, he's kind of the guy. He's the awe guy. He writes a lot about awe. You know, he's my age. He's got sort of long hair. He's, you know, looks kind of surfer groovy. At one point, I, you know, I told him, I was interviewing him for something else. I told him about my, my split. And I said, you know, do you think I should try psilocybin? And he said, yes, absolutely, you should. And I said, well, how can it help with heartbreak? And he said all those things. You know, it can kind of give you perspective, pull you out of your own funk, make you feel more connected, like make you less fearful. And, and certainly there is a lot of science showing that people, for example, with a terminal illness um, who take psilocybin become much less afraid of death and afraid of it's kind of their future. So with his you know, sort of um, approval, I guess his stamp of approval – um, I decided to try it, and I was really careful. I interviewed different therapists. I wanted to find someone I could really trust, someone I could feel safe with, because you know the thing about taking these psychedelics is you you really do lose control of your mind. And I knew I wasn't very good at that, and wasn't super comfortable with it. I wanted to find someone I really felt safe with, um, and so I so I did finally find someone. This this was someone um, actually in Portland, Oregon. She's anonymous in the book for you know sort of obvious legal reasons. And I ended up having this really, really kick-ass, fantastic experience.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm so grateful to you.
1: How do you for, think it was for, helpful to you, David?
0: Uh, it was helpful to me. It was the unhappiest day of my life. You recall, because I, I called you afterwards. Do you remember this? I, I don't do. not know if you remember. I do. I, I called you afterwards. Um, I was very it was curious. The, it was the unhappiest day of my life. I, was, I had never been... As sad as I was, and I was doing it in a group, and the other people in the group were extremely happy and extremely upbeat, <laughs> and it was a real, it was a real contrast of mood. <laughs> um, but I think for me, it just it it the closest thing I can think of is sort of an accelerated therapy. It felt like it felt like six months of getting the sorrow. I mean, going back to what I was saying earlier about using sort of distraction to distract myself from the grief and this was a way of directly facing the grief i felt and the sadness and the kind of the the loss of the loss and the love that i that i you know felt for for my ex-wife and how powerful that still was and just like addressing it and seeing it was there and and saying hello to it and uh and it was it was great and i felt such an incredible sense of relief and
1: sounds like um, catharsis
0: yeah it was cathartic and and also i i loved the kind of psychedelic grooviness to it like the parts you know my notebook is filled with You're ruminations on the trees and the spider yes. webs and stuff like that <laughs> so i loved that part of it but um but that was it was mostly the sorrow and i'm such a smug arrogant person and a smug arrogant person who mistook great good fortune for virtue and I feel like the sense of loss and of and of failure and of uh, recognition of like that I hadn't done what I needed to do to keep my life going the way I wanted it to was really it was humbling in the best possible way and gave me a lot of sort of just it just made me less of an asshole probably
1: Hmm. yes oh I think I think heartbreak does that in general You know, in the growth part of it, I think it it does sort of increase your capacity for empathy and increase your capacity ultimately for love, you know, which is really what it's all about.
0: Do you think that that's like that heartbreak, is it heartbreak that does that, grief that does that, or I guess those are all tied together?
2: Uh,
1: I I think there is something particular about the heartbreak. It just sort of tears your identity down (laughs) so, so deep that you have to kind of start back up again. When you're hurting that much, you're seeking out kind of other people who have also hurt. You know, there's this sort of secret society a little bit of of wisdom amongst people who have hurt a lot. And I, I think that you and I and you know, a, a lot of you know, successful professionals, I mean, we've been insulated from from that kind of thing for a long time. And it it does make us assholes for, you know, to some extent. Right.
0: Here you are, you're, what is it, four years? I'm four years out, yeah. Yeah. Is there any part of you, what part of this do you appreciate? Is there any part of you that's like, oh, well, this is good somehow.
1: Oh, yeah. A huge part of me, a huge part of me thinks this is good. I feel like I am a more empathetic person. I feel like I think about and um, talk about and act out sort of how to be a better human, how to communicate. You know, I'm, I'm currently seeing someone and I work really, really hard to figure out how to do, how to do better, how to be how to be better at it this time around, and I think a lot of it has to do with vulnerability. You know, writing this book was a was a really vulnerable exercise, um, but being heartbroken is a, is an exercise in vulnerability, and I, I think it has really uh, just opened me up in some some really profound ways that I'm I'm very grateful for. There's something about just even the disclosing of this kind of vulnerability, right. right. That creates a space for intimacy that, you know, had been lacking, frankly, in my life. And now right. that I, now right. I'm at like an intimacy bunny. I just, I just so groove on it. I love it.
0: Right. No, it's so, it's so funny. I mean, there's this line about, you know, men, that men don't make friends after a certain point, that men have no friends, that men's friends only come through their family or through their spouse generally. And it's been such a revelation to be, to have that, to have this possibility of friendship because of the possibility of intimacy and vulnerability and there's so many people in my life who I am so much more deeply connected to because I've gone through this sorrow and they've helped me in some way or I've helped them maybe because of they they've had something similar in their life and that's exactly what a great feeling that is
1: and I think you know the the emotional range that's implicit in that you know is so expanded I think I used to sort of exist in this sort of narrow emotional range, and now it's really big uh, and and because of that, the world is sort of italicized you know it's like the colors are brighter, the feelings are richer I do feel more alive it's it's really it's been a really interesting experience
0: is there anything that's worse
1: Oh my financial state
0: <laughs> <laughs> my
1: my retirement fund uh <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm losing my house. I mean, you know, yeah, sure. That all of that. I you know, you lose so much when you lose a long marriage. You lose a group of friends, you lose a sort of social status. Um there's a different way of moving through the world as a as an unattached person. Um and I I kind of miss I miss some of the trappings of married life. You know, I miss that, you know, we both used to go to the parent teacher conferences together and we used to walk the dog together and We had the certain expectations of, you know, how we were going to spend our years as we aged. Um, There's a lot of loss there. And I still find myself sometimes dreaming about my ex. You know, I mean, he was such a part of my life from actually the time I was 18 years old. He's still a part of me, and I still, um, you know, there are still those adventures that I dream about, which is really, I I think there's an element of loss still there.
0: Do you try to think about your past you know, I've I've made a lot of progress, I think, and you know, I'm I'm certainly I'm no, in no no sense the sorrowful person I was when when this first started for me. But I do find it really hard to think about happy moments with my ex-wife. Like even though I know there were tons of them and I know that that was a, you know, most of my adult life, but I just like don't kind of allow those memories to surface. And I feel that that's that's probably a mistake somehow.
1: I I can relate to what you're saying. I think I was like that for a while, um, but I'm getting over that. I now can sort of look at the photos, you know, from our from our river trips, and, you know, in our 20s and 30s, and and look at them and not have just daggers, you know, in my eyes for for my ex. I actually um, there's a lot I I still appreciate and love about about who he was then, and I feel like I don't have regrets either about those years of marriage. Like, I'm really glad I had them. They were they were fun. Right. Until they weren't.
0: Right. Florence Williams' book is Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey. It's a wonderful book. It's obviously especially good if you've experienced heartbreak. If you anticipate experiencing heartbreak. (laughs) uh,
1: If you know someone. It's good prophylactic.
0: (laughs) If you have friends who are heartbroken. Exactly. Florence, it's... Thanks for letting me talk to you about it.
1: You're so welcome. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you about it now and earlier. So thank you.
0: That is our show for today. GabFest Reads is produced by Jocelyn Frank, our researcher. It's Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is managing producer. And Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Follow the GabFest on Twitter at at SlateGabFest. For Florence Williams... I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. You'll hear from Emily next month.
2: Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C.,